Chapter Three, Part Three of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When the work on the sand structure was finished for the time being, they walked arm in arm along the beach, and the boy who was called Jashu kissed the beauty. Aschenbach was half-minded to raise a warning finger. I advise you, Christobulus, he thought, smiling, to travel for a year, for you need that much time at least to get over it. And then he breakfasted on large ripe strawberries which he got from a peddler. It had become very warm, although the sun could no longer penetrate the blanket of mist in the sky. Laziness clogged his brain, even while his senses delighted in the numbing, drugging distractions of the ocean's stillness. To guess, to puzzle out just what name it was that sounded something like Agio, seemed to the sober man an appropriate ambition, a thoroughly comprehensive pursuit. And with the aid of a few scrappy recollections of Polish, he decided that they must mean Tadzio the shortened form of Tadeus, and sounded like Tadzio when it is called. Tadzio was bathing. Aschenbach, who had lost sight of him, spied his head and the arm with which he was propelling himself far out in the water, for the sea must have been smooth for a long distance out. But already people seemed worried about him. Women's voices were calling after him from the bathing-houses, uttering his name again and again. It almost dominated the beach like a battle-cry, and with its soft consonants, its long-drawn U-note at the end, it had something at once sweet and wild about it. Tazio, Tazio. He turned back, beating the resistant water into a foam with his legs, he hurried, his head bent down over the waves. And to see how this living figure, graceful and clean-cut in its advance, with dripping curls, and lovely as some frail god, came up out of the depths of sky and sea, rose and separated from the elements. This spectacle aroused a sense of myth. It was like some poet's recovery of time at its beginning, of the origins of forms and the birth of gods. Aschenbach listened with closed eyes to this song ringing within him, and he thought again that it was pleasant here, and that he would like to remain. Later, Tazio was resting from his bath. He lay in the sand, wrapped in his white robe, which was drawn under the right shoulder, his head supported on his bare arm. And even when Aschenbach was not observing him, but was reading a few pages in his book, he hardly ever forgot that this boy was lying there, and that it would cost him only a slight turn of his head to the right to behold the mystery. It seemed that he was sitting here just to keep watch over his repose, busied with his own concerns, and yet constantly aware of this noble picture at his right, not far in the distance. And he was stirred by a paternal affection, the profound leaning which those who have devoted their thoughts to the creation of beauty feel towards those who possess beauty itself. A little past noon he left the beach, returned to the hotel, and was taken up to his room. He stayed there for some time in front of the mirror, looking at his grey hair, his tired, sharp features. At this moment he thought of his reputation, and of the fact that he was often recognized on the streets, and observed with respect, 
thanks to the sure aim and the appealing finish of his words. He called up all the exterior successes of his talent which he could think of, remembering also his elevation to the knighthood. Then he went down to the dining hall for lunch, and ate at his little table. As he was riding up in the lift after the meal was ended, a group of young people just coming from breakfast pressed into the swaying cage after him, and Tadzio entered too. He stood quite near to Aschenbach, for the first time so near that Aschenbach could see him, not with the aloofness of a picture, but in minute detail, in all his human particularities. The boy was addressed by someone or other, and as he was answering, with an indescribably agreeable smile, he stepped out again, on the second floor, walking backwards, and with his eyes lowered. Beauty makes modest, Aschenbach thought, and he tried insistently to explain why this was so. But he had noticed that Tazio's teeth were not all they should be. They were somewhat jagged and pale. The enamel did not look healthy. It had a peculiar brittleness and transparency, as is often the case with anemics. He is very frail. He is sickly, Aschenbach thought. In all probability he will not grow old. And he refused to reckon with the feeling of gratification or reassurance which accompanied this notion. He spent two hours in his room, and in the afternoon he rode in the Vaporetto across the foul-smelling lagoon to Venice. He got off at San Marco, took tea on the piazza, and then, in accord with his schedule for the day, he went for a walk through the streets. Yet it was this walk which produced a complete reversal in his attitudes and his plans. An offensive sultriness lay over the streets. The air was so heavy that the smells pouring out of homes, stores, and eating-houses became mixed with oil, vapours, clouds of perfume, and still other odours, and these would not blow away, but hung in layers. Cigarette smoke remained suspended, disappearing very slowly. The crush of people along the narrow streets irritated rather than entertained the walker. The farther he went, the more he was depressed by the repulsive condition resulting from the combination of sea air and sea rocco, which was at the same time both stimulating and enervating. He broke into an uncomfortable sweat. His eyes failed him, his chest became tight, he had a fever, the blood was pounding in his head. He fled from the crowded business streets, across a bridge, into the walks of the poor. On a quiet square, one of those forgotten and enchanted places, which lie in the interior of Venice, he rested at the brink of a well, dried his forehead, and realized that he would have to leave here. For the second and last time it had been demonstrated that this city, in this kind of weather, was decidedly unhealthy for him. It seemed foolish to attempt a stubborn resistance, while the prospects for a change of wind were completely uncertain. A certain decision was called for. It was not possible to go home this soon. Neither summer nor winter quarters were prepared to receive him. But this was not the only place where there were sea and beach, and elsewhere these could be found without the lagoon and its malarial mists. He remembered a little watering-place not far from Trieste, which had been praised to him. Why not there? And without delay, so that this new change of location would still have time to do him some good. 
He pronounced this as good as settled, and stood up. At the next gondola station, he took a boat back to San Marco, and was led through the dreary labyrinth of canals, under fancy marble balconies flanked with lions, around the corners of smooth walls, past the sorrowing facades of palaces, which mirrored large dilapidated business signs in the pulsing water. He had trouble arriving there, for the gondolier, who was in league with lace-makers and glass-blowers, was always trying to land him for inspections and purchases, and just as the bizarre trip through Venice would begin to cast its spell, the greedy business sense of the sunken queen did all it could to destroy the illusion. When he had returned to the hotel, he announced at the office, before dinner, that unforeseen developments necessitated his departure the following morning. He was assured of their regrets. He settled his accounts. He dined, and spent the warm evening reading the newspapers in a rocking-chair on the rear terrace. Before going to bed, he got his luggage all ready for departure. He did not sleep so well as he might, since the impending break-up made him restless. When he opened the window in the morning, the sky was as overcast as ever, but the air seemed fresher, and he was already beginning to repent. Hadn't his decision been somewhat hasty and uncalled for, the result of a passing diffidence and indisposition? If he had delayed a little, if, instead of surrendering so easily, he had made some attempt to adjust himself to the air of Venice, or to wait for an improvement in the weather, he would not be so rushed and inconvenienced, but could anticipate another forenoon on the beach like yesterday's. Too late. Now he would have to go on wanting what he had wanted yesterday. He dressed, and about eight o'clock rode down to the ground floor for breakfast. As he entered, the buffet room was still empty of guests. A few came in while he waited for his order. With his teacup to his lips, he saw the Polish girls and the governess appear. Rigid, with morning freshness, their eyes still red, they walked across to their table in the corner by the window. Immediately afterwards, the porter approached him, cap in hand, and warned him that it was time to go. The automobile is ready to take him and the other passengers to the Hotel Excelsior, and from here the motorboat will bring the ladies and gentlemen to the station through the company's private canal. Time is pressing. Aschenbach found that he was doing nothing of the sort. It was still over an hour before his train left. He was irritated by this hotel custom of hustling departing guests out of the house, and indicated to the porter that he wished to finish his breakfast in peace. The man retired hesitatingly, to appear again five minutes later. It is impossible for the car to wait any longer. Then he would take a cab, and carry his trunk with him, Aschenbach replied in anger. He would use the public steamboat at the proper time, and he requested that it be left to him personally to worry about his departure. The employee bowed himself away. Pleased with the way he had warded off these importunate warnings, Aschenbach finished his meal at leisure. In fact, he even let the waiter bring him a newspaper. The time had become quite short when he finally arose. It was fitting that at the same moment Tazio should come through the glass door. On the way to his table he walked in the opposite direction to Aschenbach. 
lowering his eyes modestly before the man with the grey hair and high forehead, only to raise them again, in his delicious manner, soft and full upon him, and he had passed. "'Good-bye, Tadzio,' Aschenbach thought. "'I did not see much of you.' He did what was unusual with him, really formed the words on his lips, and spoke them to himself. Then he added, "'God bless you.' After this he left, distributed tips, was ushered out by the small gentle manager in the French frock coat, and made off from the hotel on foot, as he had come, going along the white blossoming avenue, which crossed the island to the steamer bridge, accompanied by the house-servant carrying his hand-luggage. He arrived, took his place, and then followed a painful journey through all the depths of regret. It was the familiar trip across the lagoon, past San Marco, up the Grand Canal. Aschenbach sat on the circular bench at the bow, his arm supported against the railing, shading his eyes with his hand. The public gardens were left behind, the piazzetta opened up once more in princely splendor, and was gone. Then came the great flock of palaces, and as the channel made a turn, the magnificently slung marble arch of the Rialto came into view. The traveller was watching. His emotions were in conflict. The atmosphere of the city, this slightly foul smell of sea and swamp, which he had been so anxious to avoid, he breathed it now in deep, exquisitely painful draughts. Was it possible that he had not known, had not considered, just how much he was attached to all this? What had been a partial misgiving this morning, a faint doubt as to the advisability of his move, now became a distress, a positive misery, a spiritual hunger, and so bitter that it frequently brought tears to his eyes, while he told himself that he could not possibly have foreseen it. Hardest of all to bear, at times completely insufferable, was the thought that he would never see Venice again, that this was a leave-taking for ever. Since he had been shown for the second time that the city affected his health, since he was compelled for the second time to get away in all haste, from now on he would have to consider it a place impossible and forbidden to him, a place which he was not equal to, and which it would be foolish for him to visit again. Yes, he felt that if he left now, he would be shamefaced and defiant enough never to see again the beloved city which had twice caused him a physical breakdown. And of a sudden, this struggle between his desires and his physical strength seemed to the aging man so grave and important, his physical defeat seemed so dishonourable, so much a challenge to hold out at any cost, that he could not understand the ready submissiveness of the day before, when he had decided to give in without attempting any serious resistance. Meanwhile the steamboat was nearing the station. Pain and perplexity increased. He became distracted. In his affliction he felt that it was impossible to leave, and just as impossible to turn back. The conflict was intense as he entered the station. It was very late. There was not a moment to lose if he was to catch the train. He wanted to, and he did not want to. But time was pressing. It drove him on. He hurried to get his ticket, and looked about in the tumult of the hall for the officer on duty here from the hotel. 
The man appeared and announced that the large trunk had been transferred. Transferred already? Yes, thank you. To Como. To Como? And in the midst of hasty running back and forth, angry questions and confused answers, it came to light that the trunk had already been sent with other foreign baggage from the express office of the Hotel Excelsior in a completely wrong direction. Aschenbach had difficulty in preserving the expression which was required under these circumstances. He was almost convulsed with an adventurous delight, an unbelievable hilarity. The employee rushed off to see if it were still possible to stop the trunk, and as was to be expected, he returned with nothing accomplished. Aschenbach declared that he did not want to travel without his trunk but had decided to go back and wait at the beach hotel for its return. Was the company's motorboat still at the station? The man assured him that it was lying at the door. With Italian volubility, he persuaded the clerk at the ticket window to redeem the cancelled ticket. He swore that they would act speedily, that no time or money would be spared in recovering the trunk promptly, and so the strange thing happened that, Twenty minutes after his arrival at the station, the traveller found himself again on the Grand Canal, returning to the Lido. Here was an adventure, wonderful, abashing, and comically dreamlike beyond belief. Places which he had just bid farewell to forever, in the most abject misery, yet he had been turned and driven back by fate, and was seeing them again in the same hour. The spray from the bow, washing between gondolas and steamers with an absurd agility, shot the speedy little craft ahead to its goal, while the one passenger was hiding the nervousness and ebullience of a truant boy under the mask of resigned anger. From time to time he shook with laughter at this mishap which, as he told himself, could not have turned out better for a child of destiny. There were explanations to be given, expressions of astonishment to be faced, and then, he told himself, everything would be all right, then a misfortune would be avoided, a grave error rectified, and all that he had thought he was leaving behind him would be open to him again, there at his disposal. And to cap it all, was the rapidity of the ride deceiving him, or was the wind really coming from the sea? The waves beat against the walls of the narrow canal, which runs through the island to the Hotel Excelsior. An automobile omnibus was awaiting his return there, and took him above the rippling sea, straight to the beach hotel. The little manager with a moustache and long-tailed frock-coat came down the stairs to meet him. He ingratiatingly regretted the episode, spoke of it as highly painful to him and the establishment but firmly approved of Aschenbach's decision to wait here for the baggage. Of course his room had been given up, but there was another one just as good, which he could occupy immediately. Passe de chance, monsieur, the Swiss elevator boy smiled as they were ascending. And so the fugitive was established again, in a room almost identical to the other in its location and furnishings. Tired out by the confusion of this strange forenoon, he distributed the contents of his handbag about the room and dropped into an armchair by the open window. The sea had become a pale green, the air seemed thinner and purer. The beach, with its cabins and boats, seemed to have colour, although the sky was still grey. 
Aschenbach looked out, his hands folded in his lap. He was content to be back, but shook his head disapprovingly at his irresolution, his failure to know his own mind. He sat here for the better part of an hour, resting and dreaming vaguely. About noon he saw Tadzio in a striped linen suit with a red tie, coming back from the sea across the private beach along the boardwalk to the hotel. Aschenbach recognized him from this altitude before he had actually set eyes on him. He was about to think such words as, "'Well, Tadzio, there you are again,' but at the same moment he felt this careless greeting go dumb before the truth in his heart. He felt the exhilaration of his blood, a conflict of pain and pleasure, and he realized that it was Tadzio who made it so difficult for him to leave. He sat very still, entirely unobserved from this height, and looked within himself. His features were alert, his eyebrows raised, and an attentive, keenly inquisitive smile distended his mouth. Then he raised his head, lifted both hands, which had hung relaxed over the arms of the chair, and in a slow twisting movement turned the palms downward, as though to suggest an opening and spreading outward of his arms. It was a spontaneous act of welcome, of calm acceptance. End of chapter 3